Our reading this evening is 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. And we commence at verse 1. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labour and travail, for labour in night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know, how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God which in Judea are in Christ Jesus for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen even as they have of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come unto them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. And as ever we trust that the Lord will owe his own special blessing to the reading of his infallible word. Amen. 
Well, this evening we're continuing our new series of studies in Paul's two epistles to the Thessalonians. We have already considered the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and this evening we shall be considering the whole of chapter 2. We saw in our first study that the city of Thessalonica was the capital city of Macedonia, an area that perhaps would now equate to northern Greece. And we know that Paul and some of his companions spent a relatively short time in Thessalonica preaching the gospel of God's grace. And there were some who were trusted in Christ and were going on in the faith despite some very stiff Jewish opposition. And not only had they trusted in Christ, but their witness had been such that their faith was spoken of throughout Greece and beyond. It was probably whilst Paul was in Corinth that he received tidings from Timothy that prompted him to write his first epistle to the Thessalonians, addressing some problems which had reportedly arisen in that young Thessalonian church. And later, receiving reports of further or continuing problems in that church, Paul was led after just a brief interlude to write his second epistle to the church. And it appears that the main problem that had arisen amongst the saints at Thessalonica was to do with the Lord's return, namely when it would be and how to prepare for it. And in the last verse of our first study, we saw Paul noting how the believers at Thessalonica had, and I quote, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. At Thessalonica, the saints there were now awaiting the Lord's return. But before Paul is going to get round to dealing with it, he, he has some other things to mention. Starting with quite a lengthy resume of the time that he and his companions had spent with them. And verse 1 of our study passage this evening reads thus. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. It appears that the enemies of the gospel in the city of Thessalonica had accused Paul and his companions of lacking a true interest in those who had put their trust in Christ and perhaps also of having taken advantage of them. And so Paul wants to make it clear that this hadn't been the case at all. The fact that there were those who had put their trust in Christ clearly showed that God had blessed Paul's ministry. Those converts were living proof of the validity and effectiveness of that ministry. In Acts chapter 16, we have a record of what befell Paul and his companions at Philippi, and how Paul and Silas were beaten there and jailed. And following, we have that wonderful account of the salvation of the jailer and all his household. And verse 1 of Acts chapter 17 tells us how Paul and his party then travelled to Thessalonica. And I quote, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, 
where was a synagogue of the Jews. And verse 2 of our study passage this evening shows Paul reminding the saints at Thessalonica of that passage of events. He wrote these words. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as ye know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Despite having been badly treated at Philippi and perhaps still bearing some of the scars, Paul and his party didn't hesitate to continue preaching the same gospel that they had suffered for at Philippi. Their concern for those unconverted in Thessalonica surpassed their fear of further ill treatment. They contended for the faith with boldness. And notice carefully that Paul writes of being bold in our God. Bold in our God. Paul and his party had confidence in God. And this is the confidence that we need when we tell others about the gospel. We must never trust in ourselves in any way but in God alone. And verses 3 to 12 of our study passage show Paul continuing to remind those saints at Thessalonica of how he and his companions, the missionary party, had behaved impeccably in the short time that they were active amongst them. Firstly, we see from verse 3 that, contrary to any criticism that may have been aimed at them, Paul and his party had not acted deceitfully, nor in any impure way, nor in a fraudulent manner. Paul wrote this, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. Rather, as Paul goes on to write, As we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. Notice carefully from these last words that God allowed Paul and his party to be entrusted with the gospel. They were counted worthy of that commission. And from this, can we not infer that not everyone can be entrusted with the spreading of the gospel. Paul's party were a select band and they were commissioned by God to speak on his behalf. And they did this in a way that pleased God, irrespective of whether or not it pleased men. Their aim was to please God rather than to please men. Now, this didn't mean that they deliberately sought to displease men, but that they were well aware that the preaching of the gospel might be offensive to some and would be. And when Paul writes of how it was God who tried their hearts, he's referring to the fact that God knew their motives. There may have been those who questioned the motives of Paul's party, but in a sense that was irrelevant, since God himself knew their motives. And we see that Paul goes on to provide further evidence of being innocent of those things of which they were accused in verse 8, which reads thus, For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. When the gospel was preached at Thessalonica, there was no element of flattery 
in that which was said. It was just true words. It was the gospel truth, gospel truths. And there was no question of Paul's party having done anything in an underhanded way for personal gain. There was no cloak of covetousness. Now, it's sad to say that there have been people, and, and still are, who have sought to enrich themselves from the preaching of the gospel. In our own day, there are those who have amassed wealth and who are enjoying lavish lifestyles from the offerings of their congregations. These things ought not to be so in any generation, and Paul's party hadn't been guilty of avarice in any way. And they hadn't sought their preeminence in any way, as is evident from verse 6, which reads thus, Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. They had acted in a humble fashion, even though they might have insisted on special treatment, because they were apostles. It's felt that there may have been those in that day who we might term spiritual quacks, men with what we might call the gift of the gap, who with flattering words or rhetoric travelled around seeking to make, in, to make a living off of those who might have been easily influenced. But Paul and his party were in no way like that. Rather, as Paul puts it in verse 7, we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. Now, the word translated here as nurse is the Greek word trophos. And this is the only place in the whole of the New Testament where this Greek word is found. <clears throat> Some people have thought that it might refer to a wet nurse, someone who provides milk for someone else's child. But along with that, I feel that it's more likely to be describing a nursing mother, someone who is nursing their own child. The word has the meaning of someone who provides nourishment. And in context, we can see why Paul might have been describing himself and his companions as those who had provided spiritual nourishment to those new believers at Thessalonica. And just as nursing mothers are gentle with their babies, so Paul and his companions had behaved very gently towards those to whom they ministered in Thessalonica. And this is how all relatively new believers should be treated. They must be carefully nurtured until they are ready for stronger meat. Such was the tender relationship between Paul's party and the new inquirers and converts that Paul was able to describe it as follows in verse 8. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. To have a tender love and affection for those to whom one preaches the gospel is in itself lovely. And not all of us have managed this. You know it's possible to preach the gospel faithfully, both from the pulpit and externally, without having the accompanying loving concern that was evident at Thessalonica. And this should speak to all of us who minister God's word. When we consider how Paul wrote that he and his party 
would have imparted their own souls for the sake of those to whom they were ministering, it reminded me of something else that Paul wrote, something that he wrote to the saints at Rome. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 3 we have these words. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, Paul didn't really want to be accursed, nor did he and his party wish to give away their souls to the Thessalonians, but these things were figures of speech to stress just how important the salvation of souls was to them. There was this loving concern that might be absent, regrettably, in some of us. Now, in verse 9 of our study passage, we see how Paul and his party had combined preaching the gospel with other work. Paul wrote these words, For ye remember, brethren, our labour and travail, for labouring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And in continuing to refute the allegations of the enemies of the gospel at Thessalonica, we see here Paul reminding the saints there of how he and his party had supported themselves whilst at the same time preaching the gospel. <clears throat> Although it is a biblical principle that those who preach the gospel, those who are engaged in Christian work, are entitled to be remunerated for their work, Paul and his party decided to forego that entitlement at Thessalonica. Instead, it would appear that they undertook work of some sort to support themselves. We, we know that Paul was a tent maker, so perhaps it might have been that sort of work that was undertaken. Now, we haven't time this evening to consider more fully that principle that those who are engaged in full-time Christian work are entitled to be remunerated for their work, but if you would like to consider that in greater depth, then I would recommend the study of chapter 9 of Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. However, before we leave verse 9 of this evening's study passage, I wonder of how many people it could be said that they had laboured night and day in God's service. All of us who are believers are in God's service in some way, are we not? Or might some of us just be considered as part-timers? Continuing his defence against the accusations levelled against him and his party, we see Paul in verse 10 of our study passage reminding the believers at Thessalonica that they themselves could attest to the fact that they hadn't been taken advantage of in, in any way. Paul wrote this, Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul and his companions only behaved in a godly fashion amongst those who became believers, since we can be sure that they would have behaved impeccably towards everyone that they encountered at Thessalonica. And it should be true of all those in God's service that their behaviour befits their calling. Thus never should it be able to be truthfully claimed 
by those who opposed the gospel that they were treated by any servant of God in an unbecoming way. Earlier we compared the treatment of the young believers at Thessalonica with how babies are nourished or nursed by their mothers. And in verses 11 and 12 of our passage this evening, we see a comparison being made with how fathers exalt and comfort and charge their children. Verses 11 and 12 read thus. As you know how we exalted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Now, there are some people who might not want to accept that mothers and fathers have different roles, but the Bible is very clear that this is so. And here we have an example of that. Paul likens the advice and encouragement given to those young Thessalonian believers to how human fathers should advise and encourage their children. It was essential that those new converts should understand that they now had new responsibilities. In particular, they needed to understand that their lives now needed to reflect the fact that they had become children of God, subjects of God's kingdom, and with a glorious future. They needed to walk worthy of God. And isn't this something that should be true of all believers? And so this question naturally arises for us. Are we all walking worthy of God? You know, it's not just new converts who need to realise that they have been called unto his kingdom and glory. All of us who name the name of Christ should strive each and every day of our lives to reflect that radical change that has taken place in us. And we who were once unworthy have been made worthy. Not because of any merit in us, but because we have been made worthy by God through the merits of his Son. But now we see Paul going to explain the difference between those at Thessalonica who had responded to the preaching of the gospel and those who hadn't. Verse 13 of our passage reads thus. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. You see, there would have been many who had heard the word of God at Thessalonica, but only some who received it as the word of God rather than the word of man. God's word only worked effectually at Thessalonica in those whose hearts God, by his spirit, had made willing to receive it rather than to reject it. And, you know, it's the same in every generation. Day by day, week by week, month by month, men preach the word of God to unbelievers, but so few accept it as the word of God, let alone believe it. And this just confirms what the Lord Jesus himself said, as recorded in Matthew's Gospel 22 and verse 14, namely this. Many are called, 
but few are chosen. The believers at Thessalonica had become part of the family of God, which is why Paul then counted them as brethren. And we see that Paul again addresses them as such when he writes the words recorded in verse 14 of our study passage. He wrote this, For ye brethren became followers of the church of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews. Paul and his party had travelled to Thessalonica as a missionary party preaching the self-same gospel that had been preached in Judea and had resulted in the formation of churches there, the churches of God in Judea, in Christ Jesus, as Paul describes them. And just as the Judean believers had suffered at the hands of their own countrymen, namely the unbelieving Judean Jews, so those new converts at Thessalonica had experienced similar persecution from their own countrymen, from Jews certainly, and no doubt Gentiles as well. And next we see Paul reminded the saints at Thessalonica that not only had the Jews in Judea been responsible for the murder of the Lord Jesus, but also for the murder of so many prophets of God in previous generations. Prophets sent by God previously. Verse 15 of our study passage reads thus, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. Now, the Lord Jesus himself spoke about how many of the prophets who preceded him have been murdered, and we find this recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, verses 31 onwards. That's Luke 19, verses 31 onwards. Those verses read thus. The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, that is the Lord Jesus, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye, and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. And nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Earlier in Luke's Gospel, in chapter 11, verses 47 to 51, we have the following words of the Saviour. Woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of your fathers, for they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets 
which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, it shall be required of this generation. Now it has to be made clear that the Jews were fully responsible for the murder of the Lord Jesus and are accountable for that and for the murder of all those prophets who came before him. Nevertheless, it must also be made crystal clear that the Lord Jesus voluntarily laid down his life in accordance with that great plan of salvation devised by all three members, all three members of the Godhead before the foundation of the world. In Acts chapter 2 we see Peter on the day of Pentecost saying these words, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God unto you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. And thus we see there, again do we not, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the unbelieving Jews continued to persecute those who had put their trust in Christ, particularly those who went about to spread the gospel. As Paul puts it, they, and I quote, have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. Earlier in our study this evening, when we considered verse 4, we saw how in preaching the gospel, Paul and his companions sought to please God rather than men. And now here in verse 15, we see how those Jews who persecuted Paul and others displeased God. They please not God. But of course we know that displeasing God is something that all unbelievers are guilty of. Do we not? It's only ever a matter of degree. If you turn to Romans 8, you'll see there from verses 5 to 8 that this is definitely so. Those verses read, and I quote, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. No unbeliever can please God. And the unbelieving Jews not only displease God, but are described here as contrary to all men. They could perhaps equally have been described as the opposition, since they truly opposed Paul and all those who sought to spread the gospel. And we see this, do we not, from verse 16 of the passage we are studying tonight. That verse describes those persecuting Jews as, and I quote, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sins always, for the wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Not only were the persecuting Jews unwilling to listen to the gospel themselves, they didn't want any Gentiles 
to hear the gospel of salvation either. And of course this reminds us very much of what the Lord Jesus said to some Jewish legal experts as recorded in Luke 11 verse 52. The Saviour said this, Woe unto you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. All and any who hinder the proclamation of the gospel of God's grace are just adding to their sin, filling up their sin always, as Paul puts it, for which God has marked them for judgment, and for which the wrath of God rests upon them. Verses 17 and 18 of our study passage this evening contains an explanation as to why Paul hadn't managed to return to Thessalonica since his first visit there. He wrote these following words. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavoured the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore we would have come to you, even I, Paul, once and again. But Satan hindered us. As we've already noted, it was claimed by those persecuting Jews at Thessalonica that Paul and his companions had no further interest in the new converts there. They had been abandoned, so they claimed. But this was far from the truth. Timothy had managed to revisit them, and Paul and others would have done the same had they been able. They held the new converts dear in their hearts, and as we saw in our first study, the believers at Thessalonica were remembered and upheld in prayer by Paul and his companions. And this is something for all of us to lay hold on, is it not? That even though we may be parted from loved ones for what might be a long time, we can always remember them in prayer. Now when Paul writes these words, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us, it shows that on more than one occasion, he and his companions had it in mind to visit the Thessalonian saints, but for some reason or another were prevented from doing so. And whatever the circumstances may have been, we see that Paul attributed them to Satan. He said it was Satan who hindered them. And this raises a question for us, does it not? If it was God's will that Paul and his party should revisit the saints at Thessalonica, why did God allow Satan to hinder them? Well, we know from elsewhere in the scriptures, from the book of Job in particular, that Satan is only ever allowed to do that which God permits him to do. God is working out his purposes, and he only allows Satan to do that which will suit those purposes leading to his ultimate purposes being achieved. Satan blocked Paul and his party from doing what they had hoped to do, but this didn't stop the purposes of God being achieved in the long run. Now the final two verses of our study passage this evening show once more the great love that Paul and his companions had for those new saints at Thessalonica. And also, as at the end of the first chapter of this letter, Paul refers to the second coming of Christ, which, you may recall, was causing difficulties amongst the saints there. And those verses read thus. For what is our hope or joy 
or crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, for ye are our glory and joy. When we remember that the unbelieving Jews at Thessalonica were accusing Paul and his companions of not caring very much about the new saints there, here we see Paul, as it were, putting the matter straight. They did care about them very much. So much so that they were even now looking forward to that day when they would all be together forever. One commentator has suggested that what Paul was saying to the Thessalonian converts, in effect, was this. They say that you mean nothing to us, but I say you mean everything to me. They were the fruits of his and his partner's ministry, and he refers to them, we see, as our glory and joy. When the Lord Jesus comes again, there will be great rejoicing for all those who have been redeemed by his precious blood. But for those who have never put their trust in Christ, it will be a time of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, since what awaits them is an eternity of punishment. Well, we shall consider the Lord's coming again in greater depth when we arrive at chapter 4 of this uh, book of Thessalonians in two studies' time. But as we close this evening... Let us be sure that we will all be able to rejoice when Christ comes again and that none of us will be ashamed at his coming. Amen. Feel free to contact us at Sovereign Grace Church in Tiverton. Email us at grace2seekers at gmail.com That's grace2seekers at gmail.com Alternatively, you can visit our website at www.sovereigngracereformedchurch.co.uk.